welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to Podcast 158. Uh, totally going to wing it on this podcast, so that's a full disclaimer right at the beginning. I've got a few things I wanted to talk about. It's actually been a uh, pretty busy week, pretty cool week. This is February 12th today, and just coming back from uh, quite a stay in Salt Lake City, uh, did several different things there, and it was a big weekend in other places too this was the vegas shootout weekend so it was the last leg of the world archery uh indoor and then also it was obviously the big vegas shoot so it was a pretty cool tournament uh an unexpected came up and won which was really really cool um there's been a couple things I've been excited to see at the Vegas tournament in the last several years, and those would be um, seeing some of the international shooters step up and win. Um, you know, when Pagney won, it was awesome. Um, and he's a little bit different in how he shoots. shoots with a wrist strap release. Um, and Or no, he shoots with a uh, – used to shoot with a Cascade, sorry – um, so kind of shoots with the release where you're letting off the trigger, letting off the, you know, pretty much relaxing the trigger and then it'll fire to give you a surprise shot. And then this year, uh, Bobby Eiler won and it was pretty cool to see him win. He, um, I've known Bobby for a long time. He started shooting pro, um, back when I was still working at Matthews and, uh it was i've shot with him many times so it was cool to see him come back and one of the things that was cool to see was that uh he really didn't come out flying one of the major sponsors um you know everyone's just gotten to the point where they want to expect uh hoyt or matthews or you know pse to win and you know it's it's got to the point now where you really never know who's going to win. And that's one thing that's really, really standing out. Uh, the more and more I travel around and the more and more I look at people's form and shooting, uh, which with Bobby, that's kind of a different subject talking about shooting form. But in relation to um, when I'm looking at everyone else, just the whole archery community as a whole is really, really growing and people are continually getting better. Um, and the number of high-level shooters is so much larger than what it used to be. And, you know, I, I just think that's awesome. I think it's really cool to see young faces um, shooting 300s, a uh, lot younger than what we've seen in the past. Um, I saw a ton of Knock On Nation guys um, tagging. Uh, tagging us and saying it was their first 300 that they ever shot in Vegas. So these are huge, huge jumps. And um, man, I'm 
I'm excited to be part of all that with you and um, certainly don't want to take credit for the hard work that you put into applying uh, to applying I guess the different things that I talk about because really um, you guys are the ones that put in the hard work and it's really like that with any student there's there's people that I work with uh, that get to a level and um, you know they say oh I couldn't couldn't have done it without you and you know part of that is true just the fact that I gave a little nugget of knowledge to for them to work on but in the end it's no different than anything else in life you have to take what is taught and apply it and only you can make the decision to put in the work and actually dive in there and you know give that a commitment to actually continuing continually work on that until it develops into something that makes you better and especially with archery and especially with people who have struggled with target panic or are changing to a new release uh you're going to you're gonna have some some negative time in there where things are going to feel a little bit unnatural. You're going to struggle. And the majority of the time, you'll regress a little bit before you'll progress. And that regression is really going to be determined by how many habits you've had prior to learning a new way. Um, So that's why I really enjoy teaching first-time archery people a tension release right off the bat because... You know, I feel like if they learn that way from the beginning, they don't have the struggles of people who have maybe battled with um, anticipation on the target for years and years and years, and then you have to completely change something to a different feeling. One of the things that helps with that is if you kind of change um, something enough to where it doesn't necessarily feel the same to where your old habits are going to take over. And what I mean by that is for a lot of people, if they've shot a wrist strap release for a long time um, and their index finger is kind of trigger happy, just switching over to a handheld release and starting to utilize that thumb and thumb pressure and then the pulling motion it's just enough change to where you're able to make a switch without, um, I guess, some of your bad habits coming up right away. Now, one of the cool things, um, really one of the cool things about archery is that every so often people will emerge that win a major championship or win um, – a tournament or accomplish something big and when people see them especially now um, you know with everything being televised and people are putting out live feeds you know you see these people shoot a lot more and I think now that the general public in archery has more education on what I guess top-notch form and technique look like then people are starting to become a lot more aware of when people aren't necessarily in the perfect mold and when people have um, a technique that is 
um, not picture perfect. And, you know, for years and years and years, I've watched Bobby shoot and he shot slightly different. Um, actually I used to call him one of the nicknames I had for him was flytrap because when he used to shoot years ago, he was a little bit overextended and he always shot really relaxed and his mouth would literally be open. Um, and it, you know, his jaw would, would be really relaxed and open. I mean, it looked like you could literally throw a piece of popcorn in there when he'd be in a shoot off. Um, but that wasn't, you know, necessarily a bad thing. It's just sometimes like with opening your jaw, if you're, if you're opening your jaw at different levels, you know, if sometimes it's wide open and sometimes it's partly open or completely shut, you can slightly change where you're thinking your um, anchor position is. So that wasn't normal to, you know, I guess top level coaching, but Bobby won a heck of a lot of things. He was a great 3D shooter. Um, and I would say was, you know, was a very, a very well, uh, deserving champion for Vegas because even though a lot of people didn't know about him, he's put in a lot of work over the years and he kind of falls into a category that I would classify, um, well, I'm always, I would, I always have this little list of people that I call the exceptions and there's several of them in our industry, um, guys that have technique or form that does not look like, well, doesn't look like what I teach, um, or a lot of you know a lot of the top level coaches that are really focusing on perfect posture, and you know it's kind of one of those things where if I was a psychologist or if you were a psychologist, you could easily question well what is normal and what is perfect um to me i know that the technique that i teach with the posture and the lines that i look at and the technique that i look at um the string clearance the arrow clearance um the direction of the hand coming through the position of the grip um utilizing your anatomy in a certain way um that technique is arguably not the best technique um, because you can find some of the exceptions out there like Bobby that have slightly different technique or you look at someone like Rio Wild that's hitched at the hip and leaning back and the front arms fully compressed and shoulders up high um, or you can go back to you know I posted a picture quite a while ago on my um, social media on Inst Instagram, just kind of showing um, someone that I had a lot of respect for. Uh, his name is Morgan Lundin uh, from Sweden. And Morgan was, was and is probably um, one of the most decorated shooters of all time in multiple formats and target archery. And the one thing with Morgan is, in you know he's he's shot clean rounds in Vegas too um but he has sometimes he's hitched at the hip sometimes he's bent bent on the front arm sometimes he looks overdrawn sometimes you know I've seen him I've seen him win with multiple types of releases 
I've seen times where he hasn't punched the release. I've seen times where he has. But he kind of falls into this category as one of the exceptions. Um, every now and then, an exception comes through and wins. And, you know, there's there's something that I really want to try to drive home with that. And that is, if by chance you are one of the exceptions and you really feel like your technique doesn't necessarily look like you know a picture-perfect technique, um, but you're having success and you feel confident and you feel comfortable, then sometimes it plays a disadvantage for you to continually be thinking about what you need to change in order to look like the norm. You know, a lot of a lot of psychologists will say, "Well, what is normal?" Um, that's kind of an unclear definition. And I really feel like if someone is truly comfortable and truly performs well, um, or you know, to their arguably to their max ability, then it's hard for me to justify change. And one of the things that I address as a coach, especially when I work with some of the upper end archers is you really have to look at and consider will me teaching them this type of technique really change much to their overall score and there's certainly times where I can say yes but there's also sometimes where you say no and you know I kind of like to even though I'm not I'm not uh connected or associated with him anyway but you know when Tiger Woods was playing so well he had a swing that was much different than what a lot of the top swing coaches looked at and would say was was efficient so you know he started to try to change his swing and go to something that was supposedly quote unquote a more efficient efficient swing technique and something that would help his swing be better and obviously, it was proven over the years that he probably would have been better off staying one of the exceptions and having a swing that was part of the exception and just had coaches saying, well, it's not as efficient as what we teach to the majority, but he's Tiger Woods. Like that, that was what my opinion would be. And if I got asked to coach him, if that was my, my craft, I would you know, I would just say, well, you know, how uncomfortable does he, does he feel changing something that he's so natural with? The same's true with archery. You know, there's been times where I've, um, you know, shot with Hopkins and worked with him some, and Jeff's one of the guys where, you know, obviously if you've watched Jeff shoot, you know that his anchor position definitely is not like what I teach. It's very inverted, and it's you know, tucked behind the jaw, which is something that I particularly don't like. Um, but he also has won way more tournaments than I could ever win shooting that way. Now, the thing that comes into play with the exceptions is when you try to imitate or when you try to coach someone with that technique that supposedly has a flaw in it or has flaws in it or I shouldn't even say has a flaw it has flags and what I mean by that is 
certain shooting techniques, there's red areas to where they can end up causing an arrow to miss. And when I work with people, especially when I'm doing like a short one or two day seminar, you know, it's hard for me to take someone and completely change everything about them if I needed to. If they were really um, just really messed up in their technique overall, I would still ask myself, what are the two things that I can help them with right now that are going to make the most impact? And you kind of have to slowly work on each one of those little things. And sometimes it might not be that much. They may end up leaving one of my schools still looking out of the norm. However, I might have changed one little thing that is going to really save their or help their score um, or save, save them from errors simply because I've kind of eliminated one or two of these red flag areas. One of those areas could certainly be facial pressure. Facial pressure is something that's super common with people um, digging in their anchor too tight or people that have just naturally grown comfortable with drawing a little bit too long and, and being overdrawn. Um, but the one thing that I'll tell you about facial pressure is... And actually, the one thing I'll tell you about a lot of these things that are considered exceptions are when people are adamant about practice and continually training and shooting a lot of arrows, um, and then also people that aren't necessarily someone that changes their equipment all the time or are constantly wanting to try this, try that, try this, try that, try this, try that, where they're just committing so much of their time into trying uh, a different cam position or a different fletch or a different arrow. I mean, you kind of have to be careful with that. There's a fine line between wanting to know what's the best combination for your for your arrow to group well versus just constantly being someone that's changing things all the time. The one thing that I'll tell you about some of the greats that had unorthodox form um, would be they usually have the same exact looking un unorthodox form all the time. And you don't see them going to tournaments each time with a different type of setup. You'll notice that you know a lot of their equipment stays the same. They've shot the same stuff for a long, long time. Um, in a lot of ways, I'm like that too. I've, I find a lot of comfort. I find a lot of, um, I guess, assurance. Um, and I find ease in shooting something that I've used for a long, long time because it feels so natural that if I don't practice for a little bit of time, I'm able to actually still have comfort when I step behind my bow and shoot. Now, some of the people that have a lot of red flag areas, they may not be able to do that as quick um, unless they really don't mess with their equipment very much. But usually when it comes to form and technique, you'll find that those people shoot a lot and a lot of arrows. And that's the one thing that separates them from the majority, which is why in coaching, the technique that I'm teaching with 
the T formation and the lines that I look at for um, posture and then the fit that I look for with the bow, I'm trying to find what is going to work for 99.9, I don't know if it's that high, but let's just say 90% of the archers. If I can put 90% of people in that position, they're going to eliminate several red flag areas. And what that does is if it's someone that isn't continually practicing high numbers of arrows all the time, they're less likely to have something that causes big misses. Um, the people that have a little bit unorthodox technique, if they go through spells where they're not shooting as much, a lot of times when they come back and start shooting, they may not be as good as where they were. And at that point, they'll have to make a change uh, to try to get comfortable into something again. Um, a lot of the guys that were really good 3D shooters back in the day are people that... Um, and I say back in the day because that's when I shot it. Um, it seemed like the people that would have big wins and then they would be nowhere to be found and then they would have a big win again. Um, you know, after quite a bit of time, they would all of a sudden come out of the woodwork and have another big win and then they would kind of fall to the wayside and, and be gone again. A lot of those people con were continually changing things. Um, and at that point, that would be the time to say, okay, if I'm not really practicing as much as I want to, but I'm struggling when I'm trying to compete, you know, if you're an exception and have unorthodox technique, that would be the time where you realize this isn't helping me. But if you're someone that's just after it continually and continually and continually, um, like, Rio has been or like Morgan London has been um, you know you can find that those unorthodox techniques do always sit there in the running but just also keep in mind you know you look at someone that has that technique and you look at you know the 6 to 15 guys over the course of the years that have um been in the Vegas shootoff, for example, just because that's one we all get to see people side by side by side. You know, if you have a line of 10 people, it's not like you're going to be looking at, you know, eight people that all have different technique. If you look at the, say there's 10 guys on the line, there's going to be a huge similarity between the mass majority of those people. And then there'll be, they'll, they'll always be the one or two that are in there that just have technique that's just quite a bit different. And um, I know a lot of a lot of amateurs are quick to you know quick to duplicate at times. So I would just I would just warn you to if you're someone that you know doesn't you know yourself doesn't shoot very often and your time on the range is limited you know, I would focus on a technique that's proven for the mass majority instead of focusing on something that someone that's just shot a bow this exact way for the majority of their life um, is doing. So, uh, you know, be mindful. Obviously, if you're one of those people where you continually do really well with how um, you're shooting and you feel like maybe 
you need one or two points, um, you know, to be an elite shooter, um, an elite level shooter. You know, maybe you find a coach that can give you a few techniques, but also I would warn you, um, be mindful of someone that tries to change too much. You know, if you're a shooter that is definitely above average with, um, with an exception in technique, then you really want to find a coach that's going to try to find one or two of those red flag areas and make a tweak on them versus uh, having a coach that's just going to automatically want to change everything about you. Um, but likewise, if you're someone that has technique that isn't really standard technique and when you're honest with yourself you realize i'm just i'm really not as good as what i want to be and i'm not it's not like i'm good often um and that i just struggle every now and then in those situations that's where you have to really accept making a change to maybe more of a more of a standard technique like what i teach um and understand that once you make those changes, you're going to have a natural um, decline in your performance until you're able to make that feel comfortable again. So being able to accept that decline for a slight period of time in order to come out of that um, a better archer, that's something that's really important. And a lot of people give up because even though they're, they're shown a new technique, they don't truly discipline themselves 100% to making that happen. So I do want to say congrats to Bobby. Um, that's really awesome, dude. Happy for you. You've been, a, you've been a shooter that's been right there for a long, long time. And uh, I'm happy to see you step up there. It was pretty cool. Uh, the amount of unfamiliar faces up there at Vegas. And that's kind of a combination of a lot of things. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how many times you've shot a perfectly clean 300 round in practice, um, which most of the known favorites obviously just sit there and can pound 300s all day long. Uh, but then they go to a big event, and all it takes is is one arrow, you know, one little brain fart, and you're done. And honestly, that's why, um, that's really why I personally um, just aren't shooting tournaments anymore because I just know that um, based on the types of things that I do, um, I've got a choice every single weekend of what can I do with my time and what is most productive for myself overall. You know, for years and years, uh, for over a decade, I competed at every single tournament I could find. Um, but now I kind of use my time for something else. While everyone was flying to Vegas, you know, I could have went to Vegas, but I also had two other things. I was I actually had a meeting at Easton talking about an arrow that's coming. Um, then I also had a meeting at Hoyt. Then I went to Traeger um, and did some things there. And then also went and did a podcast with the Gritty Bowman uh, at the Hunt Expo. 
and got to see some friends there and then also did um, a Traeger takeover and also uh, had a cool uh, dinner at Traeger HQ with a lot of people uh, following, uh, hanging out in the Hoyt booth and seeing a lot of you guys there. So, you know, it's hard to... um, it's hard to justify for me going to a tournament that's going to take up three to four or five days when there's literally a hundred people that are capable or a hundred or more now that are capable of shooting a perfectly clean score. And what you'll find is if they started the Vegas shoot over today, you would probably have 50 to 60% of those guys standing in the final would be a different face. And then at the end of that three days, you started it over again, it would be the same thing. So, um, you know, it's just for me, going to a tournament is almost like gambling right now. Um, I know there's a lot of people out there that really like competition, love going to the shoots. And I'm definitely not saying um, that it's not worth it because it is worth it. For me, it was definitely a stepping stone um, to move towards what I'm doing now. Um, If I wouldn't have been at those tournaments, I wouldn't have been able to talk with you about um, things that you might need to do to be better at them. But in the same sense, um, I've also just really got to the point where I enjoy other aspects of archery, and there's a ton of it out there. Um, You know, there's so many different levels of of archery and you know you go to a to a place like the western hunt expo where i was and a lot of the people would have no idea that vegas the vegas shoot was even happening um likewise if you went to vegas there's a lot of people there that would have no idea at all that the western expo was happening um so there's just different different worlds to it and i've had people ask me why why do you continually seem like you're training for a tournament, but you don't go to any? And I really continually train because it helps me mentally be in really at the ready all the time. It certainly helps me um, if someone last minute, you know, in which a lot of my things and a lot of my events are last minute. You know, um, if someone says, "Can you come here and?" help coach or help teach for a little bit then i i feel like i can go there and not feel as if i'm unprepared um obviously i hunt throughout the whole year so i really like feeling prepared at all times and the other thing too is my indoor shooting is actually um kind of it it's my way of telling my brain that we're starting over Um, We're going to get back on track, and it's kind of just the startup for me each and every year because I like to go into the range. I'm not, I don't truly enjoy indoor shooting, if I'm honest. Um, Sitting there and shooting the same thing all the time is really hard for me to do mentally because my mind is so um, hyperactive that it's really difficult to sit there and shoot the same distance, same thing all the time. It's fairly boring. But I have to tell myself going in that the purpose of that training is to really just get myself comfortable with 
um, my rhythm and timing again. Because a lot of times throughout the hunting season, um, you know, the numbers of arrows that I shoot during hunting season are, are, are limited. Um, the time of day I'm shooting, a lot of times if I take a block target with me and um, I'm at a hunt or something, I'll throw it out of the truck and jump out and I'll shoot for a little bit. But, you know, there's there's elements, you know, it, it, a lot of times there's wind involved. Um, you know, I'm kind of shooting different distances. I'm constantly thinking, okay, I want to make sure my 20-yard pin's good, my 30, my 40, my 50. You know, sometimes I'll shoot from a tree stand a little bit. Sometimes I'll, you know, be in a seated position shooting. So it's not quite the same as just standing in one spot at one distance and really working on a systematic and rhythmatic approach to where you're just ingraining this rhythm and this movement and this cadence and this timing and this is something that um, I went into detail with um, on this podcast that I did with Brian at Gritty Bowman Um, he'll have that coming out sometimes sometime I don't know when he'll release it but it's going to be a really good podcast for you to pay attention to when it comes out because we talked a lot we talked very in depth about hinge releases different release types different types of release execution and um you know we kind of talked a lot about some of these subjects that would relate to um the new faces that you saw in the final at the vegas tournament um and we also talked about training with purpose and learning to really have something in particular that you're working on with training Um, And then we talked about the differences and what different types of training are good for. And I don't want to go too too in-depth because it's a really good podcast for Brian. Um, So I want you to, when it comes out, I want you to to definitely listen to that and listen to some of the things that I talked with Brian about because um, he struggles with target panic at times, even with different releases. And he struggles mainly because of his timing when he gets out to certain distances he feels like or even when he's on an animal or when he's in a pressure situation he gets to the point where he feels like his shot is taking way too long to happen so then he ends up feeling anxiety and forcing the shot so I talked with him specifically about some things that I want him to work on um, to help that so make sure you check out that podcast uh, thanks to everybody who came out to the Western Hunt Expo and said hello. Um, I My podcast actually went, I think, I don't know how much he's going to trim it up because Brian does edit his podcast some, but um, Brian and I were almost talking for about two hours, uh, so I ended up getting in the Hoyt booth a little bit late, um, so I apologize if anyone was there uh, between 5 and 5.45 and I wasn't there. I was behind the curtain with with the gritty uh, podcast so um, I apologize but I enjoyed meeting you there was a lot of you there that were talking about and kind of showing me first animals that you shot showing me your technique with the silverback talking about some accomplishments you've made um, and progress that you've made since learning to shoot that way and it's just it's almost getting to the point now where when some of you show me pictures of yourselves shooting, it's almost difficult to be able to give you much for advice, which 
is, I guess, a good and bad thing. I don't want you, uh, I guess the bad thing would be I don't want you to to get bored and not hang around and, and listen to me anymore. Uh, the good thing is I see how many of you that are binge listening and binge watching and you're applying it yourself and putting in the time and and the grind and you're coming out of this looking really, really good. And, you know, I'm proud of that part. Um, I've got a few questions here that I've kind of been scanning through that I just saved and I want to I just want to answer a few questions. Um, this question here is from TNT Taylor. He made this question a couple times throughout some different posts. Um, was just asking or asking what uh, books I would recommend to strengthen my mental game. Um, says that he's reading with winning in mind right now. Um, but he said that he's, uh, wanting to have a different book too. So, um, the, that book that you're reading is a book by Lanny Basham and it's a good book. Um, so I would definitely start with that. Um, I worked with Lanny in the past myself. Um, and he, He's a great coach. He's got a lot of really good techniques um, on the mind game. And what's great about his technique is that it was very specific to the shooting sports because he was, you know, a competitive um, fire firearm shooter. So he understands some of the same type of techniques and the importance of steadiness and, and control of breath and also just learning how to reset the mind. So that's a very good place to start. Um, another one that's a little bit um, outside of that um, is a book called Zen Golf. I actually had that book sent to me, and I forget who sent it to me, so I apologize if you're listening. Um, but someone sent me that book, and it's a pretty cool book. Um that just gives you different techniques. I actually just randomly go through um, Barnes and Noble and just kind of look to see if they have any other types of books on sports psychology. And there's been several that I've read, um, and not all of them are relevant to archery. I don't have... um, I don't have any of them here with me right now to tell you the names of them. Um, But some of them were related to the running world. Some of them were just general, almost books of study about sports psychology, um, which those books, even though they were bigger, were pretty important because they talked in depth about the different types of mentalities Um, or, you know, the different types of mentalities in athletes because all of us have different personality types. Um, So obviously we have different uh, work traits and different types of things that really move the needle for us. Um, You know, and and I learned learned one thing for me is just that my mentality is very task-driven as a mentality. Whereas some high-level athletes are ego-driven techniques. Um, so learning, learning what buttons are best to push for each of those different types of personality types are important because 
truthfully, if you if you're honest with yourself and realize, yeah, you know, I'm definitely a full type A ego driven type personality. Um, some of the task driven things may not push the envelope for you, and you may find that you're really bored. Um, whereas, obviously, the ego driven personality is, you know, trying to find things that are much more competitive in nature um, to try to push you through um, practice and progress versus task driven people like me are very systematic um, to where I'm I'm more happy um, having something specific to achieve or a specific task written down that I'm trying per tournament that in the end can stack up to um, to be a big win for me once I've worked through some bugs so um, there's several different types of books you got to just jump in there don't be afraid to uh, don't be afraid to go to go to a bookstore uh, with a cup of coffee and sit down and grab three or four different ones and just skim through them and find one that you're like okay this one to me this one seems like it's reading at a at a level that I can grasp and understand uh, but those are a couple that I think can get you on your path um, so the next question here is from Joe's Barbell <laughs> he's saying um, let's see um, he's pretty much saying um, he's a new guy into archery so welcome to archery um, and he's got you know he really wants to try to hunt and he's wondering where the heck should he start um, in taking in this content it says the podcasts are great but a bit over his head um, so he's kind of looking for advice on where to start and how to set a budget and all that stuff so um, there's a couple things there one I would say the best two places to start if you're looking specifically for a video on how to is go to the knock on archery YouTube channel and uh, look up Archery 101 and Archery 102 with John Dudley. Those are two great places to start. Um, I think those are the those are the spots where you're going to not only see how I would work with someone new for the first time or how I would teach them to shoot a release for the first time. That's uh, pretty important. But also just seeing bow fit as well is pretty dang important. Um, also, I did get um, I'm gonna build a bow on a budget and I'm gonna hunt with it um, I'm gonna film it I just got it in um, I got it in last week so I've got a few things that are on my schedule first but uh, what I will tell you is I did um, buy a Hoyt Power Max and I'm gonna set this bow up with um, some different accessories that are going to be, uh, you know, on a budget and then go ahead and set that bow up and shoot it and, you know, go from there. So keep your eyes out for that as well. Obviously I'm a big fan of the podcast. I know some of it will be over your head. Um, but I just would urge you to just stick with it. Um, I've actually got, uh, whenever someone starts working for us for the first time 
you know, they have a ton of questions, especially questions that are sent in through the store. Um, but I always tell them, hey, I know it might be boring, but if there's um, if there's any way you could just listen to um, to these podcasts, you're going to learn a lot right out of the gate. Um, and I know it may seem overwhelming, but just pick up the little bits and pieces that you can, and you're gonna you're gonna be way further ahead than most people. I promise you. Uh, you just gotta make sure you dive in there and stay persistent to it. But I would say starting out with that archery 101, starting out with that archery 102, both of those videos. And then kind of getting into some of the videos of mastering the release aid. Um, those would be good because they focus on, you know, I would really focus on the video specific when I'm shooting more so than the equipment uh, or like the knocked and ready to rock segments. I would focus more on the shooting segments because you're going to pick up quite a bit there. Um, next question here is from Hoffman CS23. He's pretty much saying that he's got a, a Hoyt Pro Defiant with the number two cam, and he's in the A position on the cam, so he's at the very first setting on the cam. And he's asking if he switched over to a number one cam, which would let him go to the to the pretty much to the end of those settings to get to his draw length would he feel a difference um he says he he's heard a lot that he'll get some extra speed um but right now it just feels like he's um like he's almost holding and stopping the bow before the draw force uh cycles all the way through um and he's also saying uh if he did switch cams and cables um, but not the limbs would his poundage go up or down he said he's got a lot of mixed uh, information on that so there's several questions there one and you know obviously the most important um, is will the cam feel better and I would say with that particular model yes it will this is actually a subject we got into on, on that Gritty Bowman podcast as well um, but the A position, a lot of times, um, it's going to it's going to stop a little bit sooner. You're almost pre prematurely stopping that cam from cycling all the way over to the max draw length that it can go to. So I've always found myself that having those cams in those last two to three positions uh, do have a little bit better feel. It seems like the valleys are often a little bit longer, um, and it feels like on some bows, the newer bows today, it's not as noticeable, but on in years past on older style bows, when you would stop a cam too soon, a lot of times they would feel spongier than when they were in their full slot. So I definitely think it would feel better. I mean, obviously the best thing for you um, and this is relative to anything is, you know, if your shop has multiple bows on the rack, you know, and you, and you know, you know, you can ask that guy, Hey, this one with this cam, it's at the max position. If I use this wheel, but in this, this one here, it's like in, 
an A or a B position, just say, can I, can I pull these bows at the same draw length in the different settings? And you're going to get a quick feel for what you like. Um, the next thing is, obviously, you're going to have to pay for new cams. You're going to have to change your string and your cable length. And in relation to the question you had about your limbs, um, depending on the particular model, your limb deflection is going to be different almost by about six to eight numbers, um, depending on the bow. Some bows it could be quite a bit more, but you are going to lose poundage when you're going down. Um, so, you know, you're gonna, you're definitely gonna need to factor that in because if you're adamant about shooting um, 70 pounds and all of a sudden you go down in the cam size, you're gonna, you're definitely not gonna make that weight. You're gonna be quite a bit under that weight, probably low 60s for poundage. Um, so try to factor in limbs, cables, uh, string, and cam. And then obviously if it's not something you can do yourself, you're going to be paying someone to do that. And what is that shop going to charge you? So a lot of times you may be better off uh, just looking for a new bow on the shelf that you know especially if it's an older model like now the defiant is technically a year old um you may be able to find one um for a pretty good price somewhere because a lot of people are focused on uh selling the rx1s so kind of you f make sure you factor all that in when you go to to buy one because i've known a lot of people that all of a sudden they go to buy their new strings and cables or they say they they find a cheap deal on the cams then they end up investing in strings and cables then they realize their limbs are way short on poundage now they're kind of stuck because they've got money invested both directions and they still don't have what they want so try to factor all that in um, and a lot of times uh, your Hoyt shop can look at their tune charts that that Hoyt provides and tell you how much different those deflection numbers are on those bows uh, when you do change. Um, let's see here. Um, rolling Blackout it pretty much is asking, you'd love to see how I pack my hunting bow for trips um, uh, and how I pack to travel properly through TSA or Customs. So probably need to do a video on that really what i do is um i've got a couple cases that i've used i've got a for those of you who look at my social i've got a case that i made it was a knock-on travel case that i've made i've used it for about four years now um i didn't want to bring it out on the market until i knew i'd used it but i've probably got about six hundred thousand or seven hundred thousand miles on it um, it's been working really good. It's definitely starting to show wear now, which I think, you know, any luggage shows wear. I've had, I've had brand new suitcases that show up looking like crap, but you know, it's a lot of times if something happens majorly, you got to talk to the airline to get them to fix it. Um, but really what I do is I'll take that case and it's a soft case with wheels. I've also used, uh, Aurora cases or Easton cases or SAB case, SKB cases, 
but what I'll do is I'll actually lay out my entire um, assortment of things that I'm going to be taking. So base layers, uh, outerwear, boots. Then I kind of look at what supplies are in my backpack. Um, obviously arrows, broadheads. Um, and really what I do is I try to put one layer of, I pretty much put my base layer down first in the bow case. I'll put my base layer in there. Um, then I'll, I actually have an old little cover that I used to put over my scopes uh, when I shot 3D that fit over my fixed pins just for protection. I'll put those over that. Then I'll actually take my jacket and I'll um, set my bow, pretty much put my cam up in the hood of my jacket and wrap the jacket around my bow and set it down into the case. Um, and then I'll normally uh, kind of put my boots on either end of the case, um, depending on what size boot. If I have really big boots, depending on where I'm going, a lot of times I'll wear my boots just to save weight. I'll try to wear my heaviest stuff. Um, my optics I normally have in my backpack that I'm carrying with me. Um, my broadheads, I actually have those little rage coffins, those little plastic cases. Uh, Easton makes a broadhead case too, and I'll actually take all my broadheads out of their packaging, pretty much put them in these little coffins and take a couple dozen of broadheads with me on a trip. Um, I've got a little tool pack that I take. Uh, but I normally put my boots on each end of the bow case um, and lay them in a fashion to where, you know, if you picture your bow laying in there, I'll lay my boots to where the toes of my boots are pointing up towards the cams and then pretty much the neck of my boot as they curve around, they kind of wrap around the limbs of, of my bow and kind of will protect my bow from going forward and back too much. Um, I really like to to, like I said, put my bow and, and kind of set it in my jacket so that the string and the cams are fully protected by the, the cloth of the jacket. Make sure you don't wrap it in a foot fashion where um, you've got contact of your zipper on your string anywhere. Um, and yeah, from there, I just kind of pack everything in there and just pack stuff around my bow. I try to be careful about not putting a lot of weight on uh, the cable that goes down to your to your limb, um, especially if you've got like a limb-driven style rest, a lot of people put too much weight on that cable um, or that that cord that's going to the rest, and they can end up stretching that out. And then when you get there, you see your rest is a little bit raised uh, because you've elongated that that cord or that cable. So uh, it's pretty much what I do. I'll probably do it. Try to do a little quick video, just showing you how to do that. But it's pretty easy. That's that's really what I do: is utilize my base layers first on the ground, then my outerwear, and uh, kind of pack my stuff around it. Let's see here. Uh, next question is uh, from Andrew Andrew Chisholm. I think his name is. Um, just saying what do I use for scent control going from home to vehicle to stand do I wear my clothes in the vehicle or do I keep them in a bin 
um, and store them once I'm at home. So I've kind of done several things. Um, normally, on you know, honestly, uh, I typically if I'm driving a ways before I get to where I'm hunting, if I have a place where my hunting clothes are there, that's where I'd prefer. I hang my stuff outside. I do like um, kind of the the scent lockers to where you can blow ozone in there. Um, this year, Hunting Made Easy um, or HME um, is kind of the abbreviation for it you can look at um you can look at hme uh if you google hme outdoors you'll you'll be able to find it otherwise you can go to g as in greg s as in sam m as in mary outdoors so gsmoutdoors.com forward slash hme and you can go there they actually have this year um some really really good uh ozone products that are not as expensive as and i don't see them on here yet so they're obviously not available i'm just looking as we're talking i'll tell them to try to get the up soon but they had some new ozone stuff at the ata show that was awesome the price is really good um but they had ozones that you could they also had a, t a duffel bag um the hanging lockers are good, or if you keep them in a closet. The one thing with ozone is you don't want to have like long exposure of ozone directly to fabric. You'll see that it'll start to change the color. Um, so, you know, having like a locker or a tub where you put it on there for a limited number of time, that's pretty good. I'm not so sure it's good for bowstrings uh, with long exposure or direct exposure for a long amount of time. But I've, I'm not the best person to talk to for scent control just because I just feel like, I feel like one, I can't fully um, decontaminate everything that I've got. Meaning, you know, I've got cameras, I've got my phone, I've got backpack, like those types of things. And then obviously I always stay for a long period of time. So I've got food. Um, I normally take a thermos, you know, I take my Yeti, uh, with filled with, you know, coffee or soup so I can eat it throughout the day. So I've just got foreign smells blowing around all the time. So it's really difficult. I play the wind more than anything, but I am a believer in the ozone products. Um, I used Ozonics for a while. Now HME is coming out with some really cool stuff, which I'm pretty pumped about. Um, I use a lot of their other products, um, in my archery range they have also got some cool stuff um, and it's honestly it's just affordable stuff um, I kind of buy a lot of screw in pegs I buy a lot of um, I buy a lot of bow ropes I buy a lot of bow hangers saws I mean all that stuff and you know these guys are kind of just a budget company for that type of thing so um, you can check them out. It's called HME or go to GSM outdoors forward slash HME. You can check them out. Um, but I use Ozonics 
um, or now I'll probably try these out because they're a lot more affordable. So I'll be able to have multiple ones in, um, on the go. Um, and then I do use, when it comes to soap, I actually use like the original Hunter Specialties green soap. Um, or if I'm traveling and I don't want to take liquid soap, I actually just buy um, Arm & Hammer soap. Um, and I'll buy Arm & Hammer unscented deodorant. And I've done really well with that. And then I've actually just, a lot of times I just wash my clothes in. Um, in Costco's scent-free detergent, it's just, I think it's just called Clear or something like that. Um, so hopefully that helps you out, dude. Um, let's see here. Next question is from Mike Story Outdoors. He's asking that he's saying he's registered for the Total Archery Challenge. Um, and he's really wondering, should he take a multiple pin site or a single pin site for an event like that? Um, second question is, could I use the same arrows that I'll be hunting with or should I use um, some arrows with more front of center? So honestly, I'm going to be at the one of the Total Archery Challenges this year and um, I'm going to take literally my hunting site but shoot it with a single pin um, just because I'm going to probably shoot it with like a 35 millimeter housing with a single pin. Um, I would shoot multiple pins like I normally would for hunting but since the distances are so, you know, we've got a lot of variance in distances. Um, I would really like to be um, a little bit more finite. If I was going to a tournament and I was looking at it 100% as a hunter and I was going with buddies to where we were just saying, you know, I'm just happy with a kill shot right now. We're not really thinking about scoring rings. Then I would totally take my fixed pins and take my hunting bow exactly how it was, probably minus the quiver. Um but for the total archery challenge, my plan is even though um, I'm going to be teaching the technical aspects of shooting and elevations, um, I'm still going to shoot my hunting setup, just put on a single pin so that I can shoot a slightly smaller peep sight um, and to match that smaller housing. The one thing that I think somewhat limits my accuracy with my hunting bow is just that I shoot a full-size peep. Um, and with multiple pins, your peep is bigger. And the bigger your peep, uh, the more variance you can ha have in framing your peep. And, uh, and honestly, the more variance you'll have in your rights and lefts or ups and downs. It's not going to be a lot, but it'll definitely be some. Um, so I want to go there uh, really comfortable to be very finite with my accuracy. So um, I'm going to shoot the single pin just because I'm not going to be, um, you know, in a hunting situation, a lot of times I'm, I'm always practicing uh, or, you know, if I'm out practicing with my hunting bow, I'm shooting 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. Um, but I don't really want to go to an event like that where you've got a lot of cuts, um, where I'm trying to, to gap correctly and, uh, do that. So that's my plan for right now. Um, maybe it'll change, but from the arrows point of view and the stabilizer point of view, I'm going to shoot mine exactly 
how I'll hunt with them. So I'll probably be out there uh, with screw and points on my on my hunting arrows. Um, I may or may not decide to shoot a slightly smaller fletching profile. Normally, I'll since in my mind, in a way, it's like a tournament. I'll probably look at the weather if I see that it's going to be windy. Um, I may take an arrow that has a little bit less fletching uh, just for the drift. But overall, you know, I do want that event to be practice for a hunting situation. So uh, I'm going to try to go uh, with it as close as I can to be in my hunting setup. But um, sometimes I do shoot. I'm trying to think where I went. I went somewhere. Uh, with my hunting bow and actually shot it just put a single pin uh, scope on that attachment and that's one of the things that's nice about the new Sherlock which I know they revealed in the new Sherlock site got revealed in Vegas and I heard it was a total smash hit um, the hunting attachment is not ready yet but it will be uh, pretty soon so last question here is um, from Warden I think that's how how it's pronounced. But he's pretty much just saying, what are my thoughts um, on flu-flu arrows um, for going out and shooting squirrels and small game? Do I have any experience with them? Um, so flu-flu arrows are cool. You'll That's one of the reasons why I really like a fall-away style rest and not a shoot-through style rest because... You'll be able to shoot clearance with a lot of different fletching types. So, uh, you know, I think if you've got a whisker biscuit or something, that's probably not, you're probably going to, one, you're going to wreck a lot of your flu flu arrows, but having a limb driven or fall away style rest is going to be really important. Um, hopefully, they, the flu flu arrows have been fletched with feathers instead of veins. Uh, I've never seen, I guess I've never seen a flu flu arrow with veins but maybe they make make one but more or less flu flus are really big super long feather if you can imagine a feather to where it's you know three to four inches above the arrow shaft that's what they are so they go out of the bow pretty fast and then they just have a tremendous amount of drag and they slow down and kind of fall out of the sky really quick um the two types of heads that i'd recommend um one g5 makes um, an SGH, uh, which is short for small game head. Uh, G5 makes one that's pretty cool. Easton made one that was actually like a little, it was almost like, it looked like a bullet type, type point that would screw on, and as it would hit, it would actually flatten out. There's a uh, rubber o ring on there that then makes it go back to a ball again. So it'll flatten out and kind of, you know, issue a lot of kinetic energy in a short period of time just like a bullet would um, so it's not really designed for penetration more so than just brute force and then the other one is uh, don't overlook just a rubber bludgeon uh, the old rubber bludgeon point that's just it almost looks like a, uh, a wine cork they're a lot smaller though uh, with kind of some neural knobs on the end those are my favorite they actually fly really good um, the small game head ones fly good, but the, just a straight up rubber bludgeon uh, flies really good too. So, 
All right, everybody, I'm going to wrap this podcast up. Um, Just so you know, coming soon uh, is going to be uh, the video and everything on the two smooths. I've got a production one here. um, And I'm not going to put these on the website for sale yet until I get this video done showing you how to not only adjust it, but how to actually use um, the, the release and everything. So I want to make sure this video is done and out so that you have a full tutorial, tutorial on a hinge release. Um, and, that, that, and that's ready. The other thing too is we are getting dangerously close again on the new website. So fingers crossed on that. Um, the other thing too is this past weekend there was a full um our host for our website uh pretty much just got i don't know i think they did a precautionary shutdown um so our website was down because of our host um pretty much shut everything down for some spam um so it's back up and going now but if you were doing it this past weekend that's why and i actually didn't want to take any chances so i actually have moved our host as well um, and came everything will be us based now so that should be good too Uh, but other than that i think that's about it appreciate you listening and uh make sure actually make sure you go you can go to either or um the knock on archer youtube channel or the kill cliff youtube channel and you can see uh, the new short film that I put out called High Ground uh, with me and my buddy Andy Stumpf uh, did. It was edited by uh, Hunter Phelps and him and I put this thing together. It's pretty cool. It's got really, really good reviews and uh, I want you to check it out. So, and please share it too. Appreciate it. So thanks everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.